Hello there. Welcome to this week's episode. It's a grand number this week. A grand number. 151% betters have been produced and recorded and released as this one is now out. And uh, that is a nice number to hit. And I was thinking of just wrapping up season three on this number, but said I'd do one more next week to do a wrap-up end-of-season review. Just because... But for those that have listened to nearly all or most or some, thank you. And for those that are just discovering the show, great to have you along and lots for you to catch up on. So the last week I put out a question or a little competition for folks that might be interested in winning a book that I'd like to share. Time to think Nancy Klein put it out the last couple of episodes, got a bunch of emails in for folks that would like to be in the draw the random draw which I just did and thanks to you for submitting your email that you listen and that you've maybe shared the show with somebody you know that is always good and that was kind of one of the points of doing it to try and help you know get some more folks onto it and incentives are always good to do that but I'm not buying you guys i'm just giving you something free and the winner of the book draw is owen o'hanlon owen well done congratulations i'll be in touch via email and arrange to get that out to you and you will enjoy that and your daughter as well as you said in the email she's big into the whole area of psychology so definitely a worthwhile read so more to come in season four of the old competitions if anyone wants to give me something to give away please do always open to do that that i can share back and help folks get better with whatever that might be for season four as things stand i have lined up about 10 interviews already uh, with folks from different walks of life one recently agreed to do it he is big into climate change and a very well-known name in that world and the the fight against uh, climate change so looking forward to recording that over the next few weeks i'll be in kind of an off-season mode for a period probably not that long at all but i'll be recording during that and getting things ready for season four which will start sometime in mid-march as all the last ones have another thing that i'll be kicking off at the start of that season as things are beginning to form in my own mind and my planning is going well is a little mini series of maybe three or four episodes out at once focusing on a topic that i'm very passionate about deeply interested in and it will be very much in the vein of sharing a deep dive into this topic with tools on how you can apply it to uh, your own professional development personal development help you get better and there'll be some interviews tied into that so more to come on that as it takes shape but i'm excited to release that at the start of the new season and then interviews all the way and we'll take it from there so lastly just a call out before we go into this week's episode as always please do share this with anyone you know that might get something from it subscribe on the usual podcast channels go to the website subscribe to the newsletter all of that would be great and if you have ideas for topics or guests for season four i'm all ears drop me an email rob at rob of the green dot ie this week's interview was one i recorded a few weeks ago it's with a gentleman a leadership expert an ex airborne ranger from the u.s military and somebody that i've really enjoyed talking with over the last few months and the episode that we recorded a few weeks back as i said was was a deep dive into leadership principles mel parker has a lot of experience as a leader and comes from a background where you mightn't have expected a leader to emerge but he as his company says he takes the limits off himself faces the fear pushes forward and he's worked with some of the greatest leaders in the world like michael dell from dell and a number of other large multinationals in his career post the airborne rangers so i hope you enjoy this one it's a great one to end kind of end the season on deep diving into leadership a topic that i absolutely am massively interested in learning more and more about and putting into practice with people i coach and mentor uh, and hopefully help them improve as well so there you go enjoy this one 150 with mel parker thank you and good luck
Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hey folks, welcome to episode 150 of 1% Better and this is a, a milestone number uh, and delighted to have a very milestone guest, I don't know if that's the right term, very uh, interesting guest on the show certainly for this one and as folks that have listened to the podcast more or less all the way through i've always talked to people in different walks of life different careers but there's always a leadership element to it i believe folks that have come on have talked about their own journey and how they've become leaders in whatever specific area they're in maybe some very consciously and some subconscious or unconsciously but uh, they all lead and I'll, I'll take the, the the path maybe less traveled and that is definitely the case with tonight's guest or today's guest mel parker welcome to one percent better glad to be here delighted to have you on all the way in you're in austin at the moment all the way from good old austin texas yeah and sounding very nice and clear and that that's all, all thanks to the modern technology which is great <laughs> so, so mel i had the pleasure of being in your presence uh, in probably I think it was November time frame when you were over in Cork um, at the the training that you delivered and that was more focused on emotional intelligence but during the course of the mm-hmm. day lots of things I suppose came up and and obviously got the opportunity to to take your book home and and read that since so as as we went through that day and as I read the book I said definitely a perfect candidate for for the show so thanks for coming on and the title of the book, The Parker Principles, 10 Leadership multi- or Force Multipliers, which we'll get into, is very, very interesting. And I want to hear the story behind the book. I think it's important to call out Lessons in Leadership, Airborne Ranger to CEO. So that's some transition from Airborne Ranger to CEO of organizations. <laughs> um, but what I think is interesting as well, before getting to Airborne Ranger, the, the journey you kind of went to first is very very much i suppose what is your foundation in leadership i would imagine it'd be great to hear a little bit about your background and and where where it all began for you mel first yeah absolutely uh so uh very humble beginnings so i was um born to a single mom in the 1960s uh on uh, my grandmother's pig and tobacco farm Hmm. and i don't know how it is over on the other side of the pond but Pig and tobacco farming is not a, it's not really a high, um, a high income uh, type of uh, occupation. Sure. And so you know we were, uh, as I like to say, resource challenged mm-hmm. to uh, where we were probably considered below the poverty line. So really born with not a lot of resources but born um, and lived with a grandmother who had a tremendous amount of faith. And so quite clearly the strongest woman I've ever known in my life. And she was just nothing could hurt her optimism. Nothing could hurt her positive outlook and nothing could hurt her sort of faith that, you know, with enough work and enough education that um, opportunities could exist for anyone tomorrow. And she just imbued me with that, no matter what circumstances that we lived in, that there was going to be a better better tomorrow if I put in the work and I put in the time and I put in the effort and I had an unerring belief that it could be done. Mm. Can I just the parallel, I suppose, that strikes me is that my my mom was a single mom as well, and I was brought up by my grandparents, and uh, <laughs> there's definitely some similar stuff going on there. When you talk about that faith and positive attitude that your grandmother had, when you think about, obviously, you got a lot of that from her, but where did she get it from, do you think, or, or can you have you thought or reflected on that? You know, I don't know where she got her optimism from. I know that you know, her father was a sharecropper and her grandfather was a slave. And so she, you know, had dire circumstances with her childhood and how she was brought up. And I don't think she had more than a high school education mm-hmm. of that. But she was just worldly, um, more common sense than you could shake a stick at. 
and just had an understanding of people that was incredible. She could read you from across the room and uh, know more about you before you ever opened your mouth. Mm, very, very interesting. So common sense to me, when I hear common sense, I think of emotional intelligence in lots of ways. It, I think there's there's similarities, right? And there's common sense, having a high sense of just being aware uh, definitely maps well to, to, to emotional intelligence. Yeah, and she was um, she was a voracious reader. Uh, she mostly taught herself sort of how to read and a lot of the farther education. But she read everything she could get her hands on. And I think I got that from her that, you know, in education and books were the keys that opened up all kind of opportunities to you in the world. Very interesting. Yeah, no, that makes makes a lot of sense. When you were growing up, we probably had similarities in, in other ways, but but fear, it, that was something that's come up in, in the book and your relationship with fear. Do you think that came as a part of the life you had growing up or where did your, I suppose, fear begin to play a role in your life? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't know how much it was um, when I was growing up, because there was always danger, right? So I was I was not necessarily the the best child, you know, born to a single mom um, in the backwoods of North Carolina. You could get into a lot of trouble without a father figure, uh, and so I was I was probably had um, at points in time in my childhood that people didn't know which way I was going to go, mm. and you know the. Um, people that I grew up with, uh, most of them are no longer here. They, a lot of them went the way of either um, prison or criminals or death. And so it was, it was those circumstances. So I don't necessarily know that whether it was fear or understanding of this is the reality that I have. And the, there wasn't a fear of the reality that I have. There was probably an angst of what I didn't know about that this part of the world that people were telling me about that I could read in books, that wasn't anything I saw every day, that probably gave me more anxiety than what I was going through each and every day, the unknown. Mm. But by reading those books and hearing about stories of faraway lands and you know, um, other people rising to the top, did that give you the motivation and the drive and belief that it was something you could achieve as well? Yeah, you know, I, I call it sort of my sort of trifecta of hope, and there are three parts to it. One is science fiction, uh, and so I became an avid science fiction reader. I mean, everything back in the days of Isaac Asimov, and and in science fiction, there was always a hero. There was always some leadership character that helped you overcome the aliens, overcome the killer robots, and people rallied behind this person and they could figure things out and they could overcome things. And so there was that um, that leadership mentality that science fiction gave that inside of these worlds that I could read about that maybe didn't really exist came a belief that just because I couldn't see it, didn't today in my life did not mean it didn't exist. So I needed to find out. I need to become an explorer. And the second part of that, believe it or not, was comic books. And so, you know, I think comic books gave me a level of resilience um, because really for me, every big time comic book character, um, they had to overcome great tragedy in order to become, you know, Superman lost his planet. Batman lost uh, his parents, Spider-Man lost his uncle, but what that what comics book books they what they taught me was that the pain or the difficulties that I'm going through right now in my life are just a part of my becoming. Cuz every hero had to undergo great pressure and great um challenges in order to become and so I think that gave me some stick to and some resilience. And then the faith of my grandmother just gave me an unerring positive belief that tomorrow is going to be better than today. Mm, that's uh, very insightful. And just thinking, I suppose, as you're explaining and talking through the comic books and I suppose the images that it creates, the 
yeah, the um, rising above and 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 uh, having self belief, I suppose, comes comes yeah. true heavily there. Yeah. Did you start then to believe as you got a bit older that anything was achievable? And and I suppose it's great to be able to believe that. How, what what actions did you start to take to kind of move in in a upward or higher positive trajectory? Yeah, um, probably the most important present that my grandmother gave me was a public library card. And that was, you know, way back in the day where you actually had to leave your home in order to go get books and information because the Internet did not exist. And so in the public library, the world just opened up for me. And then I was able to actually start reading about different things. And I first sort of caught this fire about um, at the juxtaposition of education and leadership was opportunity. And that was first where I got exposed to this whole concept of the academies. So from looking at the Air Force Academy to the Naval Academy to West Point, I first got exposed to just reading about it. And then that became my passion and that became my focus that at this juxtaposition of leadership and education, there uh, must be opportunity. And with that focus, that's sort of that focus that led me to probably every different level in my career, that leadership in the end was a key to everything. Education was sort of your, it was your, on a bicycle, it's your back wheel, it's your power wheel. Um, but leadership is your front wheel. It's just your guidance. It's your support structures, the thing that helps you navigate from point A to B. So you had to have the education to power you but you had to have leadership to guide you and leadership to give you direction and to give you form. And so that combination sort of became my go-to to some leadership and education. Mm, great image as well there. From listening to you, it sounds like this was a very well thought out plan and your goals were well formed and you kind of started to know where, where you were going. And, you know, I suppose anyone maybe at the age of 12 or 13 or 14, if you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, it, you know, it potentially could be in the Air Force or, or a doctor or, or, but, you know, rarely kind of a leader in, in ways. Was, when did the like term leader or when did you become clear that's kind of what I wanted to become? Yeah. You know, um, I, I started, conceptualizing conceptualizing this leader concept you know as i in in science fiction mm. right because there, there was always a leader role that was there and then there was this concept that you know there's this leadership thing is important because this leader could rally people around them to do great things that this person could not do as an individual and so this this concept started to form and then i started to get into sports and then you get the opportunity to be whether it's, it's what we call Pop Warner football before you get into into education, into grade school football. And, you know, somehow I was dubbed team captain for a couple of those and people started to look to me for leadership. And it just became a um, a rhythm from that. I don't know how much of a plan that it was, but it just flowed naturally. And this concept that if you will have enough credibility, people believe in you enough that um, and you were trying to get something done that people believed in, they would follow you. And if they followed you, um, you could do things together as a team that you could not get done as an individual. And how did it feel when you took on that kind of captain role and, and started to take on these leadership roles? Was Did you notice added pressure or did you feel almost higher, uh, you know, higher power as a result of it? You know, I, I think I felt responsible, a level of responsibility. And with that responsibility, um, I felt excited by it. You know, I could track sort of my career that I was more um, firefighter than anything else. So when people presented to me, hey, this business is failing, things are crazy, the market is down, I'm like, that's the business for me. I want it. Mm -hmm. And so this and so I developed this sort of mentality that, you know, if you if you could go into a situation that's bad and you can figure out how to make it better for everyone that's involved in it, as a leader, you've actually made a difference. You've actually accomplished something, and that's your responsibility 
as a leader to make life better for everybody that you lead and that you're accountable for and responsible to. And so that sort of gave me a, a sense of purpose, maybe satisfaction, um, excitement, some combination of those things. Do you remember a time looking back now, you mentioned that once you dived into kind of a crisis situation and that brought out the best in you, where you've been in a situation where you weren't in, in a kind of a, you were almost in, in a comfort zone. And I, I've been in that situation where I've quickly realized I'm, you know, I'm almost overthinking things here. I'm not feeling good about things and I have to kind of change state and get out of it. Have you been in those scenarios and how quickly would you realize it's, it's the environment I'm in. I need to have something more pressured or, or more, you know, challenging. Yeah. And as I look back, you know, that's one of the things that I count as, you know, things I, I could have done differently. Because as I look back over my career, you know, I'm a, I, I have a lot of experience. You know, I did, I worked at PepsiCo and food and beverage. I worked at um, Corporate Express, which is a staples company and office products, worked at Newell Rubbermaid, worked at Dell, worked at uh, Brinks. And so what I found myself when I look back, I was always chasing the fire. So I would go, you know, the building's on fire. Great. Let's jump in. Let's put the fire out. Let's rebuild the building. And then I found myself wanting to hand it to someone else after everything is rebuilt and it's working and I needed another fire. And so, you know, I look back, I like to call myself well-traveled, that I have a massive amount of experience in any uh, industry. Um, But in the end, if I was to be honest with myself, I was always chasing the tough assignment and chasing the fire. And because leadership is universal, I could go from food and beverage into office products. I could go from office products into technology and from technology into financial services because leadership is universal. And so if you could put out fires in one industry, you could put out fires in another industry. Mm. But you look back on that and, and think that's, that's a, a positive or, or are you looking back on it from the perspective, is there other things you could have learned or done differently if you weren't jumping from fire to fire, do you think? Yeah, well, what I um, part of what I look at is everything in my life had to happen exactly the way it did in order for me to be who I am today. And I'm happy with who I am today. Mm-hmm. But when I look back, you know, I moved my family 15 times and it was because there were, you know, it was literally. And as I look back, it was always a promotion opportunity. But if I if I would have stayed in most of the companies I would have been in, I would have got promoted anyway. But it was always, hey, you come run this. It was always a bigger business. It was always a business that was more in trouble. It was always a lot more people to manage. Uh, And the fire was always bigger because it was a bigger scope and scale of the business. And I found myself just attracted to it. And all of a sudden, I was picking the family up and we were going to the next adventure. Now, for me, it was an adventure. Mm. And I For me, it allowed me to also provide a very good living for my family. But when I take a step back and look at it, I moved my family a lot. And I I don't necessarily know. I know what it is. I know where we are today. But I don't necessarily know I couldn't have done it better. I couldn't have been more stable. And um, I don't know. Mm. So, you know, on... You know, sometimes late at night when you're trying to fall asleep and you're contemplating and thinking about how things have played over your life, you know, you always look at um, different scenarios and how they could have unfolded differently. Mm, That's interesting. And one thing, just on that one, uh, recently I've been doing a lot of reflecting as well, and I, I tend to notice myself looking into the future more than I look into the past. And I kind of try and plan more than reflecting on things that could have done differently would from from your own awareness are you one that would look forward or or look back more you know i would say that was a transition i would say before my 50th birthday Mm. i was always looking forward right what's the next big job where do i go do i get a ceo job what's the next how do i do something that's bigger has more scope has more scale Um, But post 50 and part of my transition out of corporate America to open my own business, I became more reflective 
and to start to think that there may be something else other than the next big job. There may be what I can add back. There may be sharing all these experiences that I've had and the successes and failures, the lessons and challenges, and sharing it with leaders that are up and coming. And so giving them the opportunity to learn from um, mistakes that I've made, to learn from successes that I've had, to start sharing, to add more value, to give back more. And so my mission changed uh, after my 50th birthday, and it be- I became a lot more reflective after that. But I would say before then, I was um, I didn't look back often. I was always looking forward to the next thing. Okay, I I better beware when my fifty comes around. So <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> I'm making right. Note, I'm making note of that. Um, that's right. It's it's where you become aware mm-hmm. um, that you know you have um, less life left in front of you than you've done than you have behind you. Right. And then it causes you to reflect and to think about you know am I making a difference in people's lives? Am I adding value? Am I um, creating a legacy? Am I doing something worthwhile? Mm. I would also imagine, though, that, that can happen, I suppose, to, at, on people's timelines at different, different stages. Oh, yeah. Do you yeah. think it's also a consequence of having achieved so much that you were in a privileged position in a way to kind of start to look back as opposed to if you hadn't you know got to the ceo level hadn't had such a successful career by 50 you could have still been chasing forward looking forward you know yeah i think that's fair i think i'd had you know i was i was thinking what would be the next job and the next job would be you know a bigger president's job a bigger ceo job but i've had the jobs and so once you've had the jobs you know, you, you've done it mm. and you're successful. I, um, I'm a member of a public board. That was one of the things that I wanted to do by 50. So by age 46, I was on a publicly traded board um, as a director and it was the youngest person by far on the board. And so that, uh, so I had, you're right. I think I had, I had accomplished a lot of things that were on my career bucket list. And so now I'm like, I've done this. So would it be so bad to just stop here, count everything as done in a high five, and then chart out a new direction for the balance of my life for the rest of my career? Mm. You mentioned the mission change. So there, and I tie, I tie values and core values and I suppose objectives into our own missions and visions. Has your own view of your values changed around that time as well? Yeah, I, I think one of the things was was money. I, mm-hmm. That um, it was no longer a chasing of the big check, and you know, I really had a part of my sort of transition happened uh, in October 2016 because that was my I had had my 50th birthday August 8th, and October 2016 is where I lost my grandmother at. Okay, and so you know, she, and I get. I told you how big of a sure. monstrosity she was in my life. And so um, I was able to spend the last week of her life, you know, at her bedside. And we talked and sang hymns and, and laughed. And one of the things she did, she challenged me on, she said, you know, son, I want you to stop living in fear. And I was like, well, grandma, you know, I'm an airborne ranger. I can't even talk about some of the, I, I really don't live in fear. Mm. And she and she gave me that grandmother look and she said, you know, you've been talking about, you know, writing a book and starting your own company and doing something different for five, eight, ten years now. And you've done nothing on that process. And I think you haven't done it because you're scared. I think you're scared that you of who you would be without that corporate paycheck. I was like, well, Grandma, that's a pretty good corporate paycheck. And it comes every two weeks, whether I'm happy, sad, or indifferent, as long as I'm doing my job. Yeah. Like, And she was like, well, but that's fear. Because you don't trust yourself that you can add value and be worthy without that big corporate job. And you that's all you talk about is doing something different, yet every year you don't do anything different. 
So what I want you to do and promise me that within a year of my passing that you will write your book at least. And if you read the book, you can see in my dedication part, it's dedicated to her mm-hmm. and a promise that I made to her. Yeah. And then the second thing she said, the only thing I want you to do, I want you to think about, do you want to live the next half of your life doing the exact same things that you've been doing for the first half of your life? And so um, I lost her on October 31st. By the end of January of the next year, I had left corporate America and I had started my company. And, you know, probably everyone, with the exception of my wife, probably thought I was going through a midlife crisis um, because I just left. Right. And so it was, um, you know, for the first year, we lived off Bank Parker because I didn't really leave with a plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was following what I thought my new mission was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I spent that year writing my book, working on my coaching certifications, writing courses like yeah. the emotional intelligence course and mm-hmm. the intellectual curiosity courses. And so uh, that next year in January 2018, we launched everything. We launched the book. We launched a new website and we were off and running on this new path in life. And it has been phenomenal. It has been fantastic. I, I like to say that I have n- never worked harder in my life and never been happier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you're going after something you completely believe in and it's all about you in in a good way, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, you don't feel like it being work at all, right? Right. I don't. And I can I I have some control. I can say that, you know, I'm not going to do this conference um, such as because this is the week of my grandson's birthday Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to miss my grandson's birthday. I missed enough birthdays with my sons to where I refuse to miss another grandson's birthday. And I could say no. And so I feel like that I'm empowered to change my priorities. And I have this, um, I have a focus on family now and the importance of family and the importance of being connected with my two grandsons and, and being there for them and being a force in their lives um, at this, you know, trying time in the world. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I feel like that I work myself to the bone 10, 12 hour days, whether it's Saturday or Sunday. Um, but it's work that's satisfying, and I always make time to take care of the other priorities in my life. Mm. No, definitely sounds like you're in a in a positive, happy place, and and well done on taking the leap out. I've talked to lots of people that have done the, that over the, the last few years, and they've you know a similar fire burning inside that. Um, to your grandmother's point, though, it, do you believe that it was fair that was holding you back? I do. I do. I think she called me out. Like I said, mm. she could read people from across the room um, more, more common sense than you could shake a stick at. And I think she she called me out. I, I think I was, you know, I identified with my jobs. I identified with being an SVP. I identified with being a president and what those jobs meant and how those jobs helped me take care of my family and provide a living for my family. And then I recognize that, you know, a lot of times when you grow up with nothing and you finally get something, it's hard to risk it again. And so that causes fear because you you know what it's like to be hungry and you have to decide that I can never let my kids be hungry. You know, I know what it's like to wear, you know, jeans to school with holes in the knees mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, hand me down shoes. And so, you know, I never wanted you know, we always want to do better for our children than we did for ourselves. And, you know, what I when I think about it, sometimes when you just grow up with nothing and you finally get to where you're not worried about bills every month, mm-hmm. that you're not worried about food, you're not worried about that. You um you never want to lose that. Mm-hmm. And to leave corporate meant putting all that at risk again and just relying on um, me and that I had um, enough value to offer to people to where they're willing to um, compensate me for it. Mm. So there, so she was right. There was that, there was that fear and there was a recognition that, you know, 
Um, when you're corporate and that paycheck hits every two weeks, it doesn't care if you lose your voice or not. Mm-hmm. You know, if I lose my voice, I can't give a class. I can't give a keynote. Yeah. So there's a whole lot more risk that I had to account for on this other path that caused me to figure out ways to not take it year mm-hmm. after year after year. Mm-hmm. Two things come up there and obviously the need then to continually learn and grow and develop and figure out how to run a business as well as deliver, you know, keynotes. And the word trust for me came up because you had to trust yourself, right? You had to trust your ability and your value. And, and there are two parts of your 10 Parker principles or two of the principles, I believe. Um, so maybe we yeah. can, we can talk a bit about, your I suppose, approach to writing the book and maybe pick out a couple of them before we wrap up as well. So you, you took the year out to write it or, or a number of months. How, how did you approach the uh, the, the writing process and, and putting it all together? Yeah, and that's a, that's a, a great point. I have, you know, there's always been, uh, since my very first job in corporate America, there's always been some type of Parker principles. I've always had the philosophy that you tell your team what you stand for mm-hmm. and then you give them permission to throw a flag on you if they if you ever violate it. And the only way to do that is you have to tell them. So I used to I would write it down. It may have started with three principles, then became five. I think now there's about 20 of them that I roll out. And but I, I whittled it down to what I think the top 10 are. And then these are the things that I roll out to my team is this is who I am. And anytime you feel like I am not the person that I told you I should be, you have permission to throw the flag on me. And so I was always at every new job. And because, you know, I was always fighting fires and I was always going to a lot of new jobs. I had to quickly establish who I am. And so I developed these. This is who I am. These are my principles. This is what I stand for. And this is what you can hold me accountable to. And so that became the outline of the book Mm -hmm. is my introduction to this new life. I felt like uh, this is my new job. And so I needed to introduce people the same way I would introduce myself to a new team. So your 10 principles are telling the world this is who I am. This is my identity. You mentioned identity change from being in corporate America to being out on your own. And, and, uh, I guess that, you know, it, it probably took a lot of self-reflecting. Yeah. And this is, and this is who you can hold me accountable to being, you know, if I say that, you know, you have to build trust by leading with authenticity. If you ever catch me not leading through authenticity or focused on trust, then, you know, you throw the flag on me. You know, I take, you know, I took my West Point time seriously. You know, there was, you know, the West Point motto of duty, honor, and country. You know, um, when you grow up poor, you really don't have time to think about what does duty, honor, and country actually mean to you. And West Point gave me a chance to flesh that out and figure that out. And also the West Point honor code. And it was, you know, a cadet will not lie, cheat, steal, nor tolerate those cadets who do. And so that was the honor code. That was what it meant to be a West Point graduate is that you didn't dissemble. You didn't equivocate. You didn't tell partial truths because that's still lying. And as a leader, people expected you as a leader to be honest and straightforward and to have character. And so that that became you know, my core principles in that. And so that's why it's in there as one of my, uh, as one of my force multipliers. Cause not only do, is it a core principle of mine, but as a leader, when you have that, it literally is a force multiplier of your leadership. Mm, and, and force multiplier. Maybe, maybe explain what that term means. Cause it, from reading the book, it's something that came from your experiences in West Point and, being an airborne ranger yeah so a a false a force multiplier uh is a military term and it's meant to be something that's added to a core force that makes it more powerful for example um the job of the infantry is to go in and seize land but in order for the infantry to do what they need to do they need the air force they need field artillery they need logistics to get food in 
And so all those things that help the infantry do their job, it multiplies their force. It multiplies their effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at it, you know, my civilian sort of image that I have is that if you have to hammer a nail into a piece of wood, you could use your hand to do it. It's not the most efficient way to do it, and it's probably not the smartest way to do it, but you could do that. And you could use a certain amount of striking force, and sooner or later, with a lot of blood probably, you could probably get the nail somewhere in. Mm. Or you can just stick a hammer in your hand use the same amount of force that you were using before. And that hammer becomes a force multiplier. You don't have to swing any harder. You just added a tool to your hand Mm -hmm. to be able to take what you were doing before and amplify it. Mm -hmm. And it makes you more efficient at getting the job done of actually putting the nail in the board. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. And as you apply that or these force multipliers to your day-to-day work to become a better leader it, it obviously gives you more strength and, and more uh, ability to be better and to be all right. that you can be right right it doesn't necessarily change the leader who you are i mean because we are who we are but what it does is it helps amplify it honesty and integrity amplifies your leadership when you go um my number one item is leadership is learning and so intellectual curiosity, it amplifies your leadership. Um, leading with courage amplifies your leadership. So all these things don't create the leader. They're just things that can amplify the leader that you are. Mm-hmm. I might just pick one or two out that I'd like to just ask a question or two on. Obviously, there's so much in there. And what I really love about the book <laughs> as well, there's a lot of practical tools that you can apply i know there's a trust assessment for example in there that is is useful that you can apply to yourself and and to your Mm -hmm. team so i think that makes it more practical servant leadership is a term that brings up i think opposing views um Mm -hmm. i'm interested in in your experience how you've seen that evolve and become more and more important in leading in corporate in the world, I suppose, in, in this day and age? Yeah. And, you know, it has it, it has been evolving. I would say when I first started out in corporate, you know, this whole concept of, of if you could not claim to be a servant leader and not get booted out of the organization right? because it was all about efficiency, delivering, and you deliver at all costs. And if you break a few eggs along the way, and you have some high attrition along the way and you lose. T- it was just a part of what was understood to be corporate America then. Mm-hmm. But I think as, you know, generations started populating, you know, the ba- the baby boomers stopped being the majority and Gen X comes in just like Gen Z is coming in. The millennials are coming in, you know, as the generations changed. You couldn't get away with the same things that you got away with before. Um, I remember back when I first started, it was it was not uh, rare to hear a manager just screaming at the top of their lungs at somebody. Mm-hmm. You can't get away with that today. Mm-hmm. You can't curse people out and dress them down. But I remember seeing this. Um, early on in the career. So the world has evolved because people have evolved and they've decided what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And so it, as you start to becoming more focused on those people and recognition that it is, it is people that is your competitive advantage, not your technology, not your logistic system, because everything is run by people, your innovation and everything is run by people, that if that's your competitive advantage, then you have to figure out what's the best way to maximize out what your people can deliver to you. And in order to do that, you have to build trust. You have to figure out what they need. And it's this old concept is, you know, I don't care what you want till I know that you care. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes right into this whole concept of servant leadership. In your coaching work, how have you, maybe just a tool or an example, helped change an autocratic leader 
to become more of a servant leader? Yeah. Um, very consistently, it has been about getting leaders to make themselves vulnerable mm -hmm. because you can't build trust. Trust is built on shared vulnerability. The people that work for you, they already have vulnerability because you can reorg. Re they already feel vulnerable to their leader. And it's incumbent upon the leader in order to build trust that you show vulnerability. A lot of leaders come up with, I have to come in every day with my armor on and seem like I'm Superman and seem like I can never do any wrong. I am never wrong. I am always correct. My opinion matters more than everyone else. And what it does, it creates a distrust among the people that you lead because they know it's not authentic. It's not really you. Mm. So getting leaders to let their team in, getting leaders to be vulnerable to their team. And, you know, a lot of times when you see leaders that micromanage, that's a trust issue. It's not that a style. I like I have attention to detail. It's all ways a trust issue that causes leaders to micromanage and getting leaders to back out of that to you have to risk something. You have to risk your team making a mistake that could hurt your career because mm -hmm. if you don't risk it, then you're not you're not vulnerable and you're not really showing trust. And trust is always a two way street. So just getting leaders to be more vulnerable, getting leaders to focus on trust being a two way street to being less directorial and more collaborative to recognize that it's just as important to have great relationships north and south with your team and your boss as it is east and west with your peers mm. and your customers. Mm -hmm. Mm. That east and west are just as important to your success. And so that's a part of the that's the, that's the coaching part is is creating more self-awareness with that leader of their strengths and their developmental opportunities. Because once you know what your developmental opportunities are, you can build mitigating processes around it. Mm -hmm. No, that's a great answer. Certainly provoked lots of thoughts for, for me and I'm nodding <laughs> here as well uh, from coaching people. Uh, I can certainly, you know, see the, the experience coming out from that one, Mel. Another one that I'm fascinated about and from research I've done listening and i think i've seen a poll recently or or a chart maybe it was from one of the kind of i don't know forbes or gardeners of the world but they said like one of the the, the top skills that leadership coaching focus on is around getting them making them better listeners um was that would that tally with your experience from from uh coaching and working with leaders to be better listeners yeah, I and I would agree the um, the design of my executive communication course um, is is both about transmitting and receiving, and it's in equal doses. A lot of communication courses they focus on what the executive is transmitting, how they look, how they stand, how they um, how they how they tell the story, how they put together their presentations, and not as focused on the receiving. And the ability to receive is just as important as the ability to transmit. And so that's a, but it's a skill and you can learn things like, you know, I try to teach leaders that when you have a one-on-one -on -one with your, a person on your team, come out from behind your desk. We used to call in the military getting knee to knee. And just that single act creates connection because you take this obstacle, which is your desk out between you and you actually create a physical um, conduit of connection. And though, and there's a dozens of little skill things and processes on how to listen better, how to reflect better, how to make sure that you so acknowledge, like, let me understand what you just said. And when you do something simple like that, the person knows you actually heard them. And when people know you're listening to them, they, they think that you care. They know that you care. And when they know that you care, they can trust you. And in the end, trust, um, a trust organization is what every leader strives for. Because there's all kind of data out there that shows that a high trust organization outproduces a low trust organization by two or 300%. Mm -hmm. 
And so in the end, we're trying to build trust and listening skills are critical to building trust. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. And I think, again, in your book, you have the data that backs it up or, or that Gallup poll from, from your experience with the military. I think they've been mm-hmm. near the top of that for, for the last 30 years when it comes, I suppose, to, uh, to trust. Yes. And so, yeah, so Gallup measures our institutions, American institutions, and they measure everything from the presidency to schools to the judicial system to TV news, newspapers, and they do a trust quotient high trust, and they measure no trust, low trust, um, and then two levels of high trust. And so they combine the high trust scores into a, a trust quotient. And when you look at it, the military in 2018, its trust ratio was like 72 or 74, where in 2018, I think Congress was like nine. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the gap. They were the bottom and the military was the highest. But the military has been the most trusted institution for probably the last 26 or 27 years straight. Mm. And so when you're looking at, you know, I want a high trust organization. And my concept is the best place to look is someone that's been number one for Mm -hmm. 26 years straight and figure out what is it that they have going on there. Um, And, the and when I did the research and I looked back at it, the one thing that keeps coming out time and time again is leadership character mm-hmm. is how they build trust. Mm-hmm. Right. And everything from, you know, if you step back, the mission of West Point, people will say the mission is to, you know, build great generals with strategies. And all. the singular mission of West Point is to build leaders of character. And so the military has this hyper focus on character. And I think that ties directly into why it's been the most trusted organization for 26 odd years. Mm. Yeah. What comes up as well, just for me, there is this idea of focusing on the bright spots as well. And you look at organizations that one area might be doing really well. And why is that doing really well? And, and, and replicate that in other parts. And as you said, you're looking at yeah, makes makes total sense to look at the number one or two organizations or um, groups that have been performing well and see what they're doing. So, yeah, to- totally makes sense. Your book is about lessons in leadership, and, and you mentioned lessons you've learned through mistakes and failures. Is there any one big failure uh, that you've had in your career that stands out that has turned into a big success? Um. You know, I I think that right at the beginning of my career, um, I was failing in a manner where if I didn't run into the right boss that um, could see past that failure and to give me a second chance, my career would have been over sort of my very first job. Mm -hmm. Because as I transitioned out of the military into corporate America, you know, I never changed my mindset. So in the military, when you get a team of people, These are people that volunteered to give their lives for their country. So it was your job to make everybody a success. You spent just as much time with your A players as you did with your D players because everyone counted, because everyone volunteered. And I took that mentality into my first job. And so it was everyone can be saved. I will never let anybody go from my team. I don't care how bad you're performing. I'll spend time with you. And I found myself spending more time with my C and D players. And then I started losing my A players. And my boss at the time, I remember clearly Kurt Chebatoris, which he probably should have fired me mm-hmm. because of I was I was creating a dysfunctional team. He pulled me to the side and he gave me this coaching on you have to disconnect and you have to um, you have to uh, Make sure that you can matriculate and understand the culture in which you're operating. You're no longer operating in the culture of the military. You're operating in the culture of PepsiCo. Mm -hmm. It is about performance. It is about high performing teams. And you need to change your mindset to be able to adapt to the culture that you're in right now and then figure out how to bring your strengths to the culture that you're in right now. Mm -hmm. And he gave me this second chance to change. Uh, my methodology and to understand and to adapt. 
And I just think about it, like my corporate career could have been over in my very first job. <laughs> we, we definitely, <laughs> definitely all need second chances. And it, uh, you know, I, I would, I would say also that probably if it didn't work out there, your next role might have worked out better as well. I, I, I would imagine your resilience would have come into play. You know, the different traits yeah. would come in and win through, hopefully. I like to think that. But what he also gave me is this methodology is I, with, with the exception of a violation of integrity, character, and trust, mm. um, everyone on my team could always make a mistake, no matter how costly it was. If it was an honest mistake and you learned from it, everyone got a second chance. Right. And I learned that from my very first job, Kurt Chevatoris gave me my second chance. And so I was like, how could I not give everyone else that? Absolutely. Oh, no, it makes total sense. Mel, that's been a fascinating hour. And I really, really am glad we got the chance to do this. I love listening to you talk and tell the stories and read your book. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Do you want to just give a, a shout out how folks can find out more about Mel Parker and your company, Take the Limits Off? Oh, absolutely. You can um, find everything you want to know about me by going to my website, and it's called takethelimitsoff.com, one word. Um, Take the Limits Off is one word. Mm -hmm. And you can order the book on there. You can see podcasts. You can see uh, I have a lot of video from presentations that I've made. And so this is my mission. And so my mission is about um, executive coaching. My mission is about these high powered workshops like you were a part of in Cork. And then my mission is about doing um, keynotes and motivational speaking whenever I get the opportunity to. So if anyone sees that I can be a value and give me a call, reach out to me, I'd love to um, share with you if I could add value. Very good, Mel. I'll, uh, I'll include all that stuff in our show notes and there'll be links there. People can go to it if they didn't pick it up on the on this recording. But look, we leave it there. Thanks again so much, Mel. And it's been a pleasure to chat with you and hopefully we'll talk again again in the future. I look forward to it, Rob. Have a great one, my friend. Have a good one. Take care. So this is the outro of the podcast, guys. You got to the end, and that is great. Please hang in here for another couple of minutes. I know most people won't, but maybe there's something here of interest. So check this out. First off, thanks so much for listening to this one, as well as maybe the hundred or so that's gone before it. Why not check them out if you haven't already? There's lots of good stuff in there. The whole podcasting journey for me has been a huge learning, and I'm trying to help you guys learn and improve as well. So much has changed over the last few years since I started it. I've really realized lots of the goals that I put out there and then realized so many unexpected benefits as well. And I think anytime you take on action towards a goal, you're going to pick up lots of things that you didn't expect along the way. And hopefully they're good things. In this particular episode, was there any one or two things that jumped out? Maybe you could take a pen and paper out right now because this is something that you might think of during the episode but never do. Do it now. Take it out. Write down a goal that you're going to set yourself as a result of something you learned from this episode. Put a plan in place and then work towards it. Applying yourself deliberately over time. Take ownership. Build a habit. Improve. Get 1% better. Share accountability with somebody you know in a buddy system and learn and grow and improve. That's what it's all about. That's my hopefully inspirational piece done other areas to note check out the website robofthegreen.ie you can consume everything there for free there is obviously the podcast there's video one minute monday clips there's articles uh, not enough but i'd like to put more there if you're interested in putting one there let me know and there's a get better app page which i'm starting to add new content to over time there's a feedback page you want to email me rob at rob of the instead but it's all about trying to engage you and get you to a place of improvement so i'm open to feedback as i said ways you can help me is by following me on the socials at rob of the is the website or at rob of the green on all the social platforms subscribe to the podcast on any of the apps that you might listen to it on talk about it 
tell a friend about it tell your family members about it share some of the ideas not only to your friends but to me is there anything i can improve upon sign up to the newsletter that's there as well i'm experimenting again with a group called slack rob of the green on slack this is really for a shared accountability environment and sharing ideas you can sign up to that on the website as well all of this is obviously all free but there is also an option where you could subscribe to my patreon site and make a small donation for the content that we do it's there it's totally up to you everything that is coming in through that or could come in through that will go into making the podcast better so to close i am always trying to improve and get better change is difficult i know that but it's all about taking the first step learning something applying yourself moving forward you can do this i've been able to improve pushing myself outside the comfort zone learning and i think if i can do it so can you don't overreach don't set yourself unrealistic goals one percent at a time is enough but it's all about starting and that will bring you on your pursuit of betterness to a great place. Thanks for sticking to the very end. Talk to you next time and take care. Good luck.